Smita Deora's daughter was 6 months old when her mom started reading to her and as she kept it up her daughter lapped it up becoming an independent reader even before learning to speak at this point most parents would have thought their child was special instead smita came to the conclusion that her daughter was just the same as most other kids what was special was the fact that she was privileged enough to be exposed to the right stimuli and resources at a young age by her mother This was one of the key motivators that drove Smitha to start Lead, an ambitious company that is trying to solve for better school education in India. Smitha is Lead's co-founder and co-CEO. Of India's nearly 280 million school-going children, just around 5 to 8 million might be getting a quality education, she says. The rest are either in government-run schools or affordable private schools that simply aren't equipped to engage their curious and boundless minds. Instead, they subject to mindless rote learning, often by underpaid teachers and ill-equipped administrations. To change that, you have to relook at everything, and I do mean everything: curriculum, pedagogy, technology, teaching aids, government policies, parent mindsets, and child psychology. Join me in this interesting conversation with Smita who explains how she lives this mission. We talk about unique business models, working in education as parents, continuing to be a believer even when you're knocked down and a lot more. This is episode 20 of First Principles, your fortnightly leadership podcast from the Ken. Smita, you and Sumit started Lead, as I understand, based on a bunch of things that happened to your personal lives, etc. You as parents, uh, your experiences with people who worked for you, and how they, you know, send their children to school. The fact that Sumit's parents were teachers, etc. Tell us a bit more about these. personal experiences that led the two of you to create lead sure uh, so you know lead and the work that both of us do um is a very very personal journey for us uh for sumit as as you rightly mentioned he comes from a family of teachers he grew up in a very small town uh was amongst those few rare kids who actually went out went to ime uh you know and then lived in singapore and hence he could see the difference between the opportunities that were available to kids who were coming from bigger cities uh, me being one of them uh, as compared to kids back home which city did you grow uh, up in i grew up in mumbai uh and uh, and and hence his uh, especially from singapore every time he used to travel back the gap that uh, he saw in what was available to children in singapore and what was available to kids especially in small towns was something that was glaring and uh, there is a teacher in him and you know his his passion was in that space uh, uh, and and he wanted to come back to india and uh, do something about it my journey was actually very uh, personal and started from uh, me being a parent uh, the 
of course, education was a dinner table conversation at our place because of Sumit's passion for it. Uh, I am, a, you know, I am a lot more uh, scientific as in I, I love researching. I love to know about uh, neuroscience, brain science. And I was always very intrigued how humans develop. And and hence, you know, these these were conversations we, we both used to really like. Uh, back in 2007, Sumit decided that he wanted to come back to India uh, and uh, work, I mean, do something in education here. Were the uh, two of you married then? We were already married. We were, in fact, uh, so we got married back in 2002. And uh, we, in that year, were expecting our first child. Uh, so uh, it was an interesting uh, return journey back home uh, where the trigger was his passion uh, for education, but also uh, this very important decision the two of us were making that uh, we will raise our child uh, in India. Uh, and now for me as a parent, that's where uh, the uh, scientist in me sort of jumped in because, uh, see, Singapore is amongst the top ranked PISA countries, PISA are these uh, assessments and rankings that are done on quality of education. And India, the year before, uh, I think, uh, Been a couple skipping of years, it for a while. Yeah, had, has participated only once. And out of the 73 countries that participated, India was 72. So now as a parent, I was very aware, or to be parent, I was aware that I'm going to raise my child in a country which is amongst the bottom, whereas Singapore was amongst the top 10. And hence, I sort of jumped in and uh, started learning about it and started learning about what can I do as a parent. Uh, and, and my first teaching experiences were actually with my own baby. Uh, so that is how my journey began. If I could in just education. interrupt you, what were the two of you doing in Singapore? Were both of you working? What so both of us were working in uh, Procter & Gamble. PNG, uh, Sumit was on the marketing side, brand side. I was uh, on the finance side. Uh, in fact, I think the year we moved, uh, uh, I was recently promoted, so my boss was quite unhappy that I was moving back. It just felt right, uh, you know, to to move back uh, over here. And Sumit was very keen to to be working in education. So we just said, okay, it's okay. Let's just let's just pack our bags and go back. So that that decision that you made. Now there are two decisions, right? The first is, of course you know, to move back to India. The other is both of you are working for one of the world's most well-known retail FMCG companies, long known for innovation with a lot of structures and processes behind it, leadership, grooming, etc. To a completely new sector like education where granted Sumit's parents may have been teachers, but neither of you had any experience. What made the two of you think that you could be entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs in a space you had absolutely no idea about. Yeah. See, now, the, this is interesting. So, uh, one thing about both of us is that uh, we both uh, believe and take a lot of joy in learning. And uh, we don't get stopped by things that we don't know. In fact, the more we don't know, uh, the more intrigued we are the more we're wanting to do something about it. I think here, uh, Sumit's passion at that point was how can I, uh, how can I change the way education is in, in this country? Uh, what can I do about it? Uh, my passion at that time was, I, I actually continued with PNG when we moved to India. My passion was, uh, I'm going to be a parent. What, what is it that I can do for my child? Uh, what can I, what opportunities can I bring for my child? Uh, and I think we both were so passionate about 
these respective things that we researched and we read and we built skills around it. Uh, we did not let it stop us that we don't know. Uh, secondly, you know, uh, entrepreneurship uh, for both of us was not necessarily something that we planned will happen. Uh, it was, uh, I would say in some ways, at least for me, I would say it was out of compulsion. Compulsion because uh, there, there was a problem I was seeing in front of me. Uh, I was not seeing solutions that could systemically solve that problem. Uh, and hence I said, hey, I just need to roll up my sleeves and jump in and see how far I go. So entrepreneurship is not something that I planned. It happened to me. And uh, it was, it's, it's been a great learning experience and continues to be. So there's a lot of joy. So all this is valid. And I'm going to insert one of the questions that one of our listeners has sent, which I think is very important. How did you find your first 10 or 20 colleagues when you started, considering that both of you were coming from a completely different country, completely different organizations, who were the first? You did not have existing anchors in education or ed tech, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So how did you find your first 10 or 20 colleagues? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll bridge a little bit before I can answer that question now more specifically. See, we came back in 2007 and the lead journey uh, began in 2012. So over those five years, uh, you know, both of us had our own paths. Sumit uh, joined uh, this company called uh, ZLearn uh, as, so as so the CEO. So there was a precursor. Yeah, there was a precursor. So he joined that company as the CEO. He took it, uh, he, he really scaled that company, took it to listing. And that allowed him a lot of learning. Uh, in the meantime, of course, we, we developed an ecosystem of friends and people who were educators and who came from this space. Uh, I uh, actually did a lot of site consulting assignments, but essentially uh, from 2007 to 2010, immersed myself in early childhood learning. So uh, it sounds crazy to people, but I, I started... Was that because a, you were a parent or because, because you were preparing yourself for entrepreneurship? Because I was a no. parent. And I All think right. my, my journey towards entrepreneurship was fairly organic because I first started with my kid. I started a reading program with her at the age of six months. She was an independent reader even before she could speak. And then I discovered and I learned when I used those techniques that there's nothing special about her. It's just that she was... Uh, she got the stimulus. Yeah, she, she got, got the, the stimulus. And why can't we provide that to more kids? Uh, and in parallel, what happened was that, you know, see, I grew up in Mumbai, but I had, during my growing up years, never paid attention to the slums that surround all these buildings. But, you know, becoming a parent changed the lens through which I started looking at things. And uh, while I did see poor kids, it didn't bother me as much or did not stand out as much till the date I realized in the car is this one child, but there is another child of the same age who is in very difficult conditions. So I think this also uh, triggered, uh, triggered questions in my mind that is my life only going to be about raising two kids? Or given that I have now a pool of savings and I am educated, is there something more I can do? And especially now that I was discovering things about how a young baby can learn. Uh, so I actually started a non-profit uh, in 2010, uh, which was two years before the lead journey. Uh, and uh, this was, and, and this is where entrepreneurship happened by chance. For almost seven to eight months, I must have met all of the possible large NGOs. Uh, 
hoping that maybe I'll join them and I will make a difference because I'd, I'd made up my mind that that is something that, uh, you know, I, I find meaningful. Uh, but uh, I was actually not very, I was a little disillusioned when I met people because what I found was that the um, mindset and the approach that most of these people, you know, most of these uh, non-profits had was very incremental. See, India is a very large country and has lots of children. And the education problem is large and it's deep. So it's not an easy problem to solve. Uh, what I saw was many of them, of course, for for all the justified reasons, were looking at it as incremental change. Hey, these kids are not getting much. Can we do a little more? Can we do something more? Uh, whereas my approach fundamentally has always been, you can't uh, bring transformation unless and until you work vision backwards. So, you know, you you actually design for excellence. You're not designing for poverty. You're not saying that, hey, this is where everyone is. Let me do a little more. You say, this is where everyone should be. And hence, what can I do to get everyone there? And you, you come up with a different set of ideas when you take that approach. I, I agree with you. But I would also interject to point out that you must be faced with this very question in in your organizational setting as well the difference between reality versus vision do you build forwards from reality on an iterative basis which you know is possible or do you build backwards from an ambitious vision knowing fully well that it's some parts of it are definitely going to fail yeah how do you decide between the two because one is more real where you can say that look, we will definitely achieve this. The other one is more ambitious, but also less real because you know that there are parts of it which are definitely going to fail. And with it, you risk possibly disillusioning some of the people who are with you on the journey as well. How do you make this decision? See, this, in my mind, the decision is always the latter. The, the best way to build something, and I'll, I'll explain why I think so, the best way to build something is vision backwards. Because, uh, you know, the, the the human mind is a very interesting, uh, human brain is a very interesting organ. Uh, we create what we imagine. And hence, everything starts from imagination. When you uh, imagine today forward, it's very constrained imagination. Because you're already telling yourself, this is all that's possible. And you're accepting the reality. You're accepting reality. But disruptive things don't come from accepting reality. Now, when you work vision backwards, you say, hey, this is what I want to create. We said, when we started LEAD, we want to create a world where kids in small towns or in, uh, you know, government schools or any of these schools are able to get the same quality of education that a child in Singapore is able to get or a child in Finland, which are the top-ranking PISA countries, and a child in a big city in a Mumbai IB school is able to get. That's the vision. When we work backwards from there, a world of possibilities open up for you. And I think a lot of innovation that we did in LEAD uh, over the last 10, 11 years of the journey came about only because of that. Now, are there failures along the way? Uh, are there tough learnings along the way? Absolutely. I think the, the, the important thing in that journey is 
to know that you've taken up an audacious goal and that it will require perseverance it will require you to not get bogged down by failure it will require you to be thinking creatively for you know every problem and you'll get there and i think the you know some of the best things in the world that were created by people were not from incremental thinking so i am a very deep believer of vision backwards and that's what we speak to people about within even within the organization today i mean i remember you know the the most recent example i'll give you two three years back three three years back uh you know i was seeing that coding had become mainstream actually coding was mainstream part of school core curriculum in most of the uh, developed countries my own children had started learning coding in their international school in mumbai at grade 1 and my first reaction to it was why are we giving devices so soon and i remember spending time with their teacher and it was a fascinating learning experience for me because the you know the the teacher explained to me that see they are going to be consumers of technology now either they can be blind consumers to it or they can be aware consumers which means they know what's going behind and then if we make them creators then they will continue to have a lot more power on this technology versus them being uh, a victim of the technology now that made a lot of sense to me now when i was seeing that my first response also was then why is this not if my kid needs it why doesn't every child need it uh so i remember talking to my team and saying that uh, hey we need to teach our kids coding and the maximum price that we can charge our parents is 150 rupees because they today buy a computer science book this at that cost this is a monthly price this is a monthly, book the full 100, year oh, 150 oh, rupees right. for the whole year uh because they buy a computer they used to buy a computer science book at that price so i told them see that's all they afford they don't afford more than this so if if a parent is buying it for 150 200 250 whatever that number is right then that is what we have to now at that price point teach coding and the first response from the team was how is that even possible and i said but that's exactly why all of us are here like we are truly innovators if we can make it happen and and they did you know we 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 uh, launched a coding and computational skills program uh, which is used by uh, almost 3000 schools now in the remotest of towns uh, and these kids are coding in that in that school environment for which the school i mean the, the school is paying us barely 150 rupees and the parents are paying them that much whereas we know that you know a lot of other coding programs were charging more now they're targeting to they they targeted towards different parents but i'm just saying that this is an example that over the last 10 years with lead actually have become an even more firm believer that uh, vision backwards thinking might in the beginning sound foolish to people but i think it's 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 the foolish believers who actually innovate so you know i'm okay to be at that end of the spectrum to paraphrase steve jobs uh, <laughs> from what you said it looks like what you're doing is at the intersection of two overlapping circles one is a very ambitious vision the way you think about what's possible and the other is a very sharp set of constraints which is the reality of yeah. so you're yeah. trying to innovate at the intersection of these two as from your example yeah. how do we teach coding or anything else to a large number of students who can't afford it and the constraint comes from the fact that we're the reality is india 
where a large number of these students come from families that cannot afford to pay exorbitant prices for it. So it's that constraint and innovation that that happens is at that intersection. Yeah. So in fact, uh, I think the the lead product team, I think for us, uh, you know, if I speak for the team, the way we think about this is that we want to bring every child must learn. And the benchmark of learning is fairly high for us. So we, you know, are, are promised to schools and uh, we've been doing this quite well now is uh, we build confident kids who have deep conceptual understanding, who have thinking skills, communication skills, collaboration skills, and the exposure to really conquer this world. And hence, we sort of set learning outcome benchmarks, which are at parity with some of the top schools. And then we say, hey, we want to deliver that. Uh, in an environment that is constrained and the and the constraints are the parent has a certain ability to pay they're not going to be able to pay more so how do we make it affordable uh, that community has a certain you know has a certain uh, type of teachers uh, typically uh, low skill low exposure because they themselves are a victim of that system so how do we get this teacher uh, in this environment to actually deliver that learning and you know that is that is what lead does and we now we basically offer uh, an integrated uh, education solution to schools that would be my next question how would you describe what yeah. lead is in a line so, or two yeah so lead basically provides an integrated uh, school system uh, to schools to develop confident children and what we do for that is we provide them a holistic curriculum uh, all the way from nursery to grade 10, we provide them holistic curriculum that builds those skills in children. Uh, uh, we uh, we provide them technology, especially we provide technology to teachers for this low skill average teacher to become or, or for her to teach like an exceptional teacher, like some of the best teachers would teach in really good schools. And we provide the tech layer for the school and especially for all the stakeholders who are making the decision for the child, which is the teacher, the principal, the school owner, the parent, for all of them to actually get empowered with data and uh, recommendations that will help them make decisions that is right for the child's growth uh, versus uh, debates or versus even gathering data. You know, So for example, uh, assessment and performance data, which basically leads them on remedial path. Uh, it allows personalization for the student. So that's what we do uh, so at the school. Is this, at the end of the day, how, the way it works is, is lead a set of software programs that you install for a particular school that subscribe to it and then the teachers and the students and their families, etc. get yeah. some version of that yeah. on so, their apps. So... Uh, there are three layers. Because you said if you have curriculum to, also. Yeah. So if you think about it, there are three layers. Uh, it, it is, we provide a lot. It's it's pretty much like we're the intel inside in a school. The deepest layer are the curriculum layers. So that means everything that gets taught in the school, uh, the content and everything is provided by us. Help me understand that. Because there and, is a curriculum yeah. which is prescribed by the board that a school belongs to. So your curriculum is in some sense is what a plus plus over that? Is it like an aggregate of across curriculum? Like what is the lead yeah. curriculum as distinct from the board so curriculum? So what the board, uh, now this again, you know, is a uh, is a bit of a misconception. Uh, actually in India, the, the, the thing is that, that the schools have a good amount of autonomy on the curriculum. The board prescribes uh, the lowest level says at least this much must must happen. 
uh, and the board takes exit examinations at grade 10. You know, now some of the boards have started taking at grade 8 just to check where the students are. But that's what the board does. Uh, many of the boards do provide textbooks, but mostly government schools use it, not private schools. So what we do is uh, we basically, uh, we, we do plus plus, as you said. So we've benchmarked versus uh, some of the leading countries. And you've said, how do we bring that for our kids? So our curriculum is a significant upgrade to what the bare minimum would be prescribed by the board. So we provide that in the form of books, uh, digital uh, content that gets used in the classroom, uh, assessments, uh, practice at home, everything that a child needs. And then we have the software layer above it, like, like you were saying. So every stakeholder has one end of the software with a central system that powers it, right? So the school has an ERP system, the teacher has, uh, uh, you know, has a software for herself, an app for herself, the parent has, uh, and the school principal has. The There is another layer that we had to add on the top, uh, which is a hardware layer. So we also provide the hardware to the schools because we realize that we are working in small town India where they don't have access to these devices. So how do we enable the classroom to now become a multimodal classroom, which means that learning is not only with the book and a, a blackboard, but there is a digital device in the classroom. So we actually install TVs in every classroom and we give the teacher a tablet where she has access to all the content and the TV and the tablet create a smart class experience uh, within the classroom. So we provide all these layers and it's been a journey what has been that would have been my next question that it looks like you're trying to solve for the full stack. You're trying yeah. to solve for hardware. Yes. You're trying to solve for software. You're trying to solve for curriculum. Yes. I'm sure it was not this ambitious when you started. It wasn't. Where you would have thought we are going to solve for X. And when you started solving for X, you realized that we got to solve for yes, Y. Absolutely. What was that sequencing yeah. that happened with lead? So the, the journey it was interesting, right? So... Uh, I told you, I'll, I'll go all the way back to, I was looking for jobs and then I was disillusioned and I said, okay, I'll start my non-profit. And the first thing I did was created a school in the box solution for Anganwadis, which are preschool centers. And that started giving me some ideas. Uh, Sumit was, uh, Sumit was uh, you know, questioning his return back to India uh, because Z-Learn mostly catered to more affluent families and, and his heart still lied you know, was lying in the heartland of India on small towns because he was not seeing that change. So I sort of convinced him to leave or he convinced me to move either ways. Uh, so in 2012, we actually first set up a school in a village. That is where our journey began. Where? Uh, so this was in this village called Mehmedabad. It is some uh, 30 kilometers before Ahmedabad. It used to be an overnight journey from Mumbai. Uh, a very dear friend uh, had uh, some, uh, you know, family property and uh, they wanted to use it for something good. Uh, we, we went around and we looked at all the schools in that area and we were like, oh, this is exactly the problem. And we want to do something different here. So we set up a school there and that's where the journey began. I remember first day of that school, we had 14 children. Those 14 kids... 10 out of them recently passed out of 10th with flying colors. And this is a rural place. I mean, mostly kids came from uh, farming background. And, you know, the early adopters were those parents 
who basically just trusted Sumit and me because their kids were learning nothing in the school. The kids were lagging behind in class and the teachers had pretty much told them nothing can be done for them because these were classrooms with 50, 60 kids. So the parents felt that something good can happen here. These these people mm, look how good. How can it get worse? It can't get worse. And those kids speak fluently in English. They all are doing exceptionally well. You would not even come to know that they belong to a village. So that's where we began our journey. We we set up that school. We uh, From building the classrooms to painting the classrooms to uh, teaching to putting up the entire infrastructure, everything we did... Uh, and uh, our first layers, uh, to be honest, were the curriculum layers, right? Because we said, uh, you know, we, we started using a lot of the books that were available in the market. And then we realized it's not designed for this audience. It assumes that the child is fluent with English. It also assumes that the teacher is fluent with English. But here in rural Gujarat, that's not a reality because these kids have no exposure to English. So they needed something different. So the first layers that we created was an English program, which in fact today is the flagship program of LEAD. It's called English Language and General Awareness. It basically, um, you know, basically helps a child build English language skills uh, at a very rapid pace, uh, which means, you know, on an average now for seven, eight years, we've seen that kids build one and a half to 1.6 years of English skill within one academic cycle in this, in the same context in which they've been studying, where the teacher English skills are also poor. Now, when I say skill development means we actually give them while assessing them, give them a completely new text. They haven't read it before. They read it independently. They answer very deep questions about it independently. So we know really that they've learned language. So it started with English and then we built math and sciences and a lot of different uh, subjects for our students there. Then 2016, we, you know, this was working really well. Uh, our kids were doing very well. We could see, we were in school all the time, so we could see the transformation. Uh, we both used to do a lot of uh, back and forth because we had two kids back home, two babies back home who we were raising in Mumbai and not in Gujarat. Uh, 2016, once we knew that this model was working, we decided to set up more schools. So we set up four more schools in uh, Maharashtra. Again, all uh, remote areas, small towns, taluka areas. Uh, and that's when we built our first technology layer. We said, hey, if we are in Mumbai and we are uh, managing a lot of schools and we want to spread this, then this cannot happen with our physical presence. So how do we communicate with our teachers? So we created, uh, you know, the, the content management system At layer. At this point, are you funded? Are you, how are you we funding We were still self-funded. So we were, uh, you know, we, we were still using our savings. Uh, we were our first investors. I think it paid off. Uh, we also fundamentally believe that if, if we don't invest in ourselves, then who will, right? So we have to be the first ones to take the punt. Uh, so we were, we had still not raised money at that time. Not, no, we don't raise institutional money or outside money. Uh, we did have family who, who put in a little bit. So we set up these four schools and that was our first uh, They were called lead schools? They were called lead schools. Uh, and we coined the term lead at that point of time. Uh, lead stands for leadership in education and development. We, we coined the term uh, when we opened these schools. And uh, I remember still the, you know, the uh, teacher app uh, that, that we, you know, which is our now leading product. Uh, teacher app wireframes were made on tissue paper by Sumit. And we had this engineer who used to work out of his home uh, who did 
you know who created this for us and the first time uh, we launched the teacher app uh, it was in a room full of teachers who were working in our schools uh, 100 of them maybe 100 of them i remember in the you know we we thought we'll have to train them and they all just got the app with them and they all just moved with it sumit and me like we're just dumbstruck for like 7 minutes 8 minutes because no one was listening to us and then basically they just got up and there was a standing ovation because they were like this just simplifies our life i just cannot forget that moment you know we we created it so that we see our teachers teach well what we discovered was that this was joy for the teacher because this teacher was otherwise struggles in the classroom and she was now you know saying that hey this simplifies my life eventually a year later you know when we moved to the partnership model there was this teacher who uh, in marathi said uh, uh, shikshan mitra this is the teacher's best friend because now it tells me what i'm supposed to do it gives me uh, demo classes it tells me now play this video it tells me uh, go now teach from here it's so fantastic because now my kids get it and my classroom is fun because there is tv and the children are able to see some nice animations on the tv so that's what happened so 2016 to 17 journey was that we also at that point of time uh, explored some partnership models which was mostly word of mouth people because at this the, point you are still trying to think about scaling as still, creating more schools that yeah, you are managing and yes, running yes yes that change some point yes. because that seems to be incompatible with your earlier stated vision of achieving scale achieving because anything scale, in a country exactly. like india that requires you to set up physical assets and grow is automatically limited by Absolutely. capital speed of execution etc Absolutely so 2007 2016 and 2016 we saw fantastic results across all the schools so now we said okay now it's we have to down, you know fork in the road we have to make up our mind how do we go about it see both of us uh, were salaried people you know we 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 come from fairly humble background so it was not like we had wealth for us to be Uh, buying properties and things like that and hence uh, we we knew that if we go the path of setting up more own schools at best in our lifetime we'll get to 2030 uh, but if we go the partnership route then there is hope for a significantly uh, larger scale and scale was definitely on our mind because 280 million school going children only 5 8 million maybe get good quality education the rest are not and that is a problem we really want to solve so that's when we went the partnership route that is when we raised money for the first time so we did our series a straight away uh, we had a working model uh, we had some partnerships we now wanted to scale this partnership model and really test out our gtm so that's when we raised money for the first time and in the first year What we signed what was your go to market model which you just said you wanted yeah. to test your gtm our gtm was basically how do we find similar profile school owners in the same fee segment what we now call affordable uh, private schools yeah pri- private school what, segment what is this uh, fee segment so these are normally english medium schools in small towns and they tend to be in the fee range of 12000 per annum all the way up to maybe around 30 35000 per annum depending on the geographic location you you closer to a larger city your rentals and infrastructure and overall operational expenses are more so these schools will be around 30000 but otherwise you know in rural areas they'll be around 12 12 to 15000 per annum before we fees. move on from this i want to ask you a question about english medium we've seen the narrative around english medium Uh, kind of explored in many ways over the last maybe like five ten years or so. 
I want to ask you your personal observations because you've been all over India seeing schools. My understanding is that the large percentage of Indians still value English medium education because they see it as a ticket to a better career or a better future for their children. But the reality also is that they want something which often interferes with the education of their children unless it's remedied. Because great education happens when you're not struggling to comprehend what the teacher is trying to teach you, right? And so yeah, often it's yeah. it's the language that you're most comfortable with, your mother mother tongue. How do you see this yeah. play out today? I mean, from the point of view of both parents as well as children. Yeah. See, I, I am I'm a realist, you know, uh, and uh, we have to take the pragmatic approach here, which is that it is true that... Uh, you know, children have to learn English and that is because all high quality higher education in the country is available in English. I mean, unless we have IITs in multiple local languages, unless we have IAMs in multiple local languages, we are not creating a pathway for these children to succeed. Uh, if we don't and bring English and, and, and workplaces. workplaces, because what happens right. after that? You now, end up in, in India, practically, it's very difficult to have uh, local language higher education because it's a very diverse country. It works in countries in Europe, right? right? Like or Germany, China, it's okay. for instance. Yeah. So you know, it it works there, but it does not work here. Now, because they're single language countries, yeah, broadly they, yeah, single mostly language. Mostly single yeah. language. So you go to Finland. Finland is Finnish. They learn English, but they don't need to know English to be at the workplace. They don't need to know English to do their higher degrees. But in India, you need to, you know, the, the moment you get into an engineering college, like how do you get into an engineering college? How do you get into medical? Like how do you do all these professions? So you're not going to be ready for anything if you don't know English. Now, as an educator and basic science tells us that when children are uh, very young, they have the ability to learn multiple languages. So delaying language learning to an older age is actually wrong for the child. So if ultimately we all have to learn English, the best thing is actually to introduce English very, very early. So in pre-primary age groups, that means from the age of zero to six, a child has the ability to learn five, six different languages. And we've seen that in multi-language households, right? Parents are from different uh, parts of the country, different languages. Kids pick up all these languages. So actually the solution, you know, the, the, the problem in the system is that uh, we they eventually have to learn it. Uh, but then we're not doing a very good job of it in the early years. Now, the way English is taught in the country is the problem. Uh, we teach English uh, like it was taught during the Britishers era. We are not native English speakers. The way native English speakers or those uh, who, uh, you know, for whom English is, is their mother tongue, you would teach language very differently. But if that is not a language Help which is your mother tongue... understand what's the difference? So, so the difference is that, see, uh, children pick up language intuitively when they're very young by listening. Now, when they're listening, they are associating words with things, you know, like they are, let's say, I say daddy, right? And I'm looking at this person and I know this relationship, I think I understand it. And this relationship is called daddy. And there is no other person I'm calling daddy. So, you know, they'll you know, like some animal or something else, like a table or a desk. That is how they associate and they learn language. But the way we teach language, now, 
is that the kid will come to school and the first thing that we'll start teaching them is ABCD. And which is pretty much like, you know, if I put a table in front of a child, I'm actually not showing the table. I'm saying leg and, you know, front, you know, leg one and leg two. And then eventually two years later, I put it together and say, hey, by the way, you're supposed to know this makes a table. That's not how it works. Now, if a child, for example, is already, you know, has English in their context, they already have an intuitive understanding of that language. So when they come to school, you can actually just start reading and you can start using that language because they already know uh, you know, good part of it and you build vocabulary from it. But when you're bringing children uh, who are non-English speakers into now a classroom where they have to build skills of English, you have to start very differently. So what you have to do is you have to start now giving English names to things that they know in life. So for example, a very simple thing that every lead classroom will do is that all the natural things that they know in their classroom, we will label it with English words. So they will see their table every day with the word table. And that association and through that repetition association, is built up. Yeah, and the teacher just says it and that it builds. Now, whether they can spell table does not matter. We don't need them to spell it. It's like I grew up in a Hindi-speaking household. I did not know how to do Hindi spellings till I was in grade two or three. It didn't matter. No one said, I don't know the language. I knew the language because I could understand and I could speak in Hindi. But unfortunately, in schools, kids get labeled that they don't know English if they can't spell words. This goes back to the point that you earlier made about curriculum design. Is, so the, is the point that you're making that our traditional curriculum was designed that you have to first know A, B, C, D yes. before you get to yes. talk Absolutely. in fluent sentences, Absolutely. whereas actually it should be backwards. Absolutely. And in that earlier curriculum, one of the reasons why you said it's it's at a very low setting. So children who are actually perhaps more sophisticated and advanced in their understanding of English are artificially shown as bad because they can't do something that like you know they're not supposed to be doing logically so what we did was we we actually uh, broke down english language and we said hey if you have to build skills uh we you know elga breaks it down to uh different components so we teach phonics phonics helps with sounds and letter sound recognition and then putting it together it aids reading eventually but unless a child knows the sound of every letter and how that changes when two letters come together, they can't become independent readers. Then we have uh, another segment that we do called whole words. Whole words is where they associate words with natural things that has meaning in their life. Like I gave you the example of table. So they'll start with simple things that they see in their environment, you know, table, chair, pencil, mother, father, whatever, right? So they build vocabulary by knowing what things are called and people are called in English. Then we have something that we call reading and comprehension, you know, reading and listening comprehension. Now, reading and listening comprehension takes phonics skills and whole word skills and now starts putting it in sentences to get them to read interesting stories that have meanings, you know, both read it, listen to it. Uh, and it sounds build comprehension. a lot like how even adults learn using, for instance, Duolingo or something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Right? But it's that's not how schools yeah. used to teach it. I mean, that's not how I learned English. And I know I struggled with it in the beginning uh, because I didn't come from an English speaking household. My parents knew Hindi. Uh, they had learned English, but they were not fluent with it. Uh, so we do reading and listening comprehension. And then we do grammar, which helps them 
learn rules the to rules. be able so to the write rules and come speak at the end rather than at yeah. the beginning yeah and you know we we do writing and speaking expression now writing also is interesting right so i learned this see i in the first 4 years from 2012 to 2017 18 maybe so i i love learning and i always immerse myself in learning some of these new things so that we are designing things well for students so i visited thousands of schools which are amongst the top schools in the country i spent a week in finland because it's one of the top ranked pisa countries and visited multiple schools there to see what are the approaches they using uh, i went to harvard graduate school of education i said okay i am not from this space you know you asked me this question i was very aware that i am not from this space uh but that i think was an advantage because i didn't have biases i did not have a belief i know i knew i don't know and i was very curious so i went and learned from the best uh so uh you know i i went there i came back sumit did something similar so we both took different learning experiences we would bring it back together and then we started creating our uh, curriculum so uh, a lot of what we do with elga actually is inspired by the singapore framework uh singapore was sorry, an interesting this is the second time you're using the word elga, elga what's elga english language and general awareness ah, right. it is it is the it's 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 the flagship product as i was saying a lot of schools choose lead because elga is transformative for them uh i'm a little confused now because yeah. you've used this phrase this is one of our leading products this is one of our flagship products and the way i'm confused because i see it as a school chooses to use lead or not it seems like a binary yes. so then what yes. are these sub products within that which are popular etc yeah. are these products that like elga for instance so, are they yeah, available independently maybe, itself yeah. or so, no, is it just your internal more, metrics it's more my internal language maybe you're absolutely right that a school chooses to partner with lead or not and they get access to all your they they software. get access to everything but very often schools choose us because of elga so the school will be like my you know my kids are not very good with english see english is also a barrier often in all other subjects so if a kid does not know english well as you were rightly saying they will not understand anything in the math class or the science class so english is very foundational so a lot of schools choose us because of the power of the elga program saying that if they do this well then everything else will will go well now of course uh you know i'm also the one who created elga so maybe you know when my team listens to this they'll be like smita you're always <laughs> partial to it uh sumit is the one who made the math and the sciences curriculum uh, uh you know between the two of us so so maybe you're hearing a little more but i think it's it's i also said this because it was very important for the initial part of the journey because we realized that english was the barrier for everything and and hence we first had to solve the english problem so what if so english being the barrier for everything is the reason why we don't do so well as a country on a global standardized test like pisa which essentially again comes down to so because yeah. i'm just going by what no, you're saying so that so you know the interesting thing is pisa is taken by different countries in their native languages the reason why we are not doing very well in uh in these international standard uh, assessments that happen is that they are all application oriented we are honestly we are if i'm being very very honest we are not preparing our kids to be thinkers we are not preparing our children to be independent thinkers independent uh you know they are unable to apply their learning we promote rote learning in schools and that is what made us both sad and angry at the same time it's not just schools i mean if you go to post adult state our entire a significant portion of our 
quote unquote edtech industry is devoted to cracking exams which uh, is yeah. an adult version yes. of yes. um rote learning itself yes i mean you and talked about is, finland yeah. as a great example i don't think anyone looks at finns uh, as they're great at cracking entrance exams and i no think one. you know yeah and i think the cracking the exams is just an entry into something right but the point is that uh, ultimately uh, national growth gdp growth is going to come only if human capital is ready to innovate and that's a problem and our human capital is not ready to innovate because we see that so you keep deferring it you have these exams rote exams in school then you have these rote exams at a college level at a post college level and then we talk about there is a skills gap when Absolutely. indians are entering the workforce yeah. and companies complain that look this person may be an engineer but their actual level of knowledge our ability to apply is much lower yeah. and that honestly has been our own personal journey if i see if i reflect back on my own journey uh i actually learned a lot more and i started understanding things and developed some skills when i did my ca uh you know because ca gets you to apply you work while you're studying and that was a world of difference for me uh and then i realized well i lack a lot of core skills so i learned communication i learned both written and spoken communication all the tough way on the job uh and you know i saw this when i went to png and i started recruiting people i saw that that was a challenge now we we see enough numbers i mean you see how companies have uh programs where they first get people train them for a year like infosys and all done that i mean do that it's because people are not ready and we have skilling programs now on top but the core problem is that the school education is not preparing these children for life So like you said that's a much tougher problem to solve. It is a it's, tougher problem to solve and uh, that's what we are trying to solve and both of us are very very aware that we're not going to be able to solve all of it in our lifetime especially given the size of the problem in India and and hence you know as we started scaling this our vision started moving towards how do we create an institution that continues to do this work well after we are not there and that's where uh lead you know started i mean lead is that vision now that how do we set up this organization and institution that outlasts the two founders uh because we're not going to be able to achieve this in our lifetime i mean see out of 280 million uh children today today lead impacts 5 million uh through 9000 schools to some people it's very large number schools that are signed up with lead yeah so these 9000 schools with leads curriculum yeah, software so now we have uh, two 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 uh, different types of solutions in our portfolio we have lead the way i described it we recently acquired a business uh, uh, pearson uh, pearson's uh, pearson india's k12 business now pearson is an mnc it's a uh it's a company which has been in the space of education for a long time and they largely work through publications school textbooks and publications which have blended learning uh for the higher fee slightly higher fee segment when you say so we, blended learning what is that blended mean? learning is basically it's largely uh anchored on the textbook but they also provide a lot of digital content ah, okay to like the school. in the older days it would be having a cd insert cd yeah so now yeah now, yeah. now sure of course like it's no qr code and app and things like that so it's not really the full lead solution it's a, a subset of it but they target a different set of schools so both of these together now uh, impact 
uh, are used by 9,000 schools across the country uh, with uh, 5 million students actually right. benefiting from I it. I skipped a bunch of questions because sure. we were in a conversation where I want to talk to you about LEAD. How does LEAD make money? So, uh, we basically, uh, you know, we're a B2B SaaS business. So, that means we sell to schools. We sign long-term contracts with the school and uh, they pay us. Uh, typically on a per student basis. Uh, now, schools charge parents. They, they charge parents fees and also for the books. So, eventually the school passes it on to the parents. So, right? you so do it's provide the, books as well. We do provide books as well. So, we, you know, in a simple way, whatever school fees a parent is paying to the school, a small part of it comes to us for all of the products and services we provide them. And that's that's really our revenue model. This model has gone through a set of evolutions in India of trying to go to a school and digitize it and modernize it. I don't want to go into names. Companies have been started. They've failed like, you know, multiple times, right? So has the needle shifted in how, let's say, I would say you're probably the second or third generation of companies to try and digitize schools and make them quote unquote smarter. Yeah. How has the needle moved in how companies like you approach this or what didn't work again I'm not asking you <laughs> no I, I'm sure I you know yeah. some of the companies that of I'm course. talking about but I don't of want course. to make it personal see, if I, how if has I, it changed see, if I keep aside any company governance related issues right? sure. that's that's those are table stakes everyone has to uh, have strong governance if I just put that aside I think what uh, uh, the the you know that solution could reach only some schools and beyond that it did not show outcomes see ultimately whatever solution you're providing to the school we must know that student outcome must be visibly delivered if student outcome is not going to be delivered visibly to the parent the parent is not going to be happy with the school and the school hence is not going to be happy with you uh, these solutions uh, were helpful but what happened was or what happens is that they are disconnected from the rest of the things that a teacher uses so it requires a high skill teacher to take a book from publisher A and then digital smart class solution from player B and then put them together because so you're saying the full stack is required so the it full stack be. is required for the APS segment see if it's a high high skill teacher in this really fancy school in Bangalore city she's smart enough to figure this out but that is not the case for most of the teachers in the country and most of the schools. In the affordable segment, what happens is that this teacher herself uh, has low skills. So this is too complex for her. She can't put these things together. So an integrated system actually simplifies her life. So we bring everything together and that actually simplifies life for the teacher. So learning happens. And for the school owner, this is a lot more affordable. Uh, because those solutions were not even as scalable and affordable. You know, they were very expensive. Uh, schools, you know, typically if a school, uh, I think at the cost at which it would put a smart class solution in one classroom, now with the lead solution, uh, they will be able to digitize five classrooms. And that cost differential also is the barrier that people... So if you were to look at the entire, how many schools are there in India right now, approximately? Uh, in India, 1.5 million schools, so 1 million are them, government and 500,000 private If you were to schools. put them into some sort of a pyramid, what you seem to be saying is that it's the middle to bottom of the pyramid where you can create the maximum improvement through standardization. Because, I mean, what you're yeah. essentially doing through your f complete stack is you're trying to provide 
a higher value standardized curriculum um you know software and like you know the layer above versus right at the very top where you said if it's a private school in bangalore maybe standardization doesn't benefit them is is that a yeah. way to kind of so i would replace the word standardization with integration very hmm. often when we provide a solution people misinterpret that we're standardizing we're hmm. actually personalizing technology has the power to personalize and i'll, I'll explain how at a student how. level at a student level or at a classroom level uh but what this does is it integrates integration actually brings a lot of power into this ecosystem so first if i sort of zoom out the pyramid you know just to share some context and numbers with you out of 1 and 1/2 million school 1 million schools are government schools 500000 are private now out of the 500000 schools only around 50 60000 schools are this high fee schools in the metros above 50000 fee the rest are all below that the rest are all 450000 schools with almost 170 million kids are and that's the know, market and that's that, the big market so here is the thing these parents are paying money uh, to a school because they want better education than a government school but in effect because the kids are rote learning from these textbooks they are not getting better education than a government school and the parent is not even aware the parent comes to know about it only when the child is ready to come out and go into college and that's when they realize well my child is not ready and even so if they were I aware i would assume that for an indian parent it's a huge decision to take a kid out from a private school and put them back into a government school because because private yeah. at least see the private schools are a little better than government schools for sure at least the teacher is there and the teacher is doing something and of course there are pockets of schools who have done good work you know because they are also entrepreneurs and those you know some of those entrepreneurs have done good work that being said you know when i when i say that i i say it more you know as a sweeping statement for scale right like yeah. most of them are not delivering very high quality and then when they buy these disintegrated solutions their teachers and their staff is not able to put it together and that is the one thing that i have heard so often from school owners and actually it's you know see look, look at this we were school owners we tried all these products it didn't work for our students so we are just school owners who instead of uh, you know saying we will only do this for our school we built this for everyone and that's how we see our journey uh, so we completely understand what the school owners are going through uh, because they they don't they are unable to piece these things together so integration is the power and uh, is that your differentiation as well in the market vis-a-vis competitors like you know um are there there aren't any direct competitors to be honest in fact when we came uh, with the integrated school system back in 2017 when we started scaling we were the only ones uh and of course we are the largest who provide that in 2019 we figured as we were fundraising and talking to investors uh, that uh, Uh, systems and integrated systems are actually prevalent in some other parts of the world uh, especially in south america uh, and they were very successful models i think that actually gave us a lot more conviction that hey there is massive opportunity to scale here there was a lot to learn from them on how do you ensure that when you're scaling the systems are simple uh, there are you know how are you providing a variety of solutions because uh, all schools cannot teach in the same manner teachers are different so there are a lot of these personalization and multiple uh, curriculum options that we came up with over time uh so yeah so we are the only ones and uh, our competitors are multiple i would say uh 
you know, typically publishers, we'll end up replacing them, we'll end up replacing smart class, we'll end up replacing assessment solutions, teacher training programs, because the school gets everything from us. Uh, that being said, uh, if I'm being very honest, I think our biggest competition is inertia in India, where school, especially if a school is doing well, they feel I don't need to change. What it's I'm doing is cost. fine. It's a machine it's just, I'm churning. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that is something that changed with COVID, dramatically changed with COVID, where uh, schools as SMEs were largely not digitized. And I think the school owners became aware that hey, we, we have to come out of this analog system that we are in. Hmm. And that actually has given a lot of power also to our growth. So in fact, we grew uh, very, I mean, we, we, we grew exponentially through COVID. And then many people asked us, like they do with the other edtech, because, hmm. you know, edtech in India has yeah. unfortunately become synonymous to B2C. Whereas most of the education happens inside institutions. So mm -hmm. edtech is a much broader term. Uh, but uh, post-COVID, in fact, many people asked us, oh, you must have seen a business decline. And I said, no, COVID was the worst period for us because schools were shut. Uh, now is our time. So actually, we have seen that post-COVID schools are a lot more keen and open because they've realized that they have to digitize. And the second thing that's happened is parents have become very aware because parents were seeing what technology can do. They almost have that, I think, the trauma of, I, mean, I say yeah. this as a parent myself, of what happened during 2020, 2021. And you're like, look, this can happen again. And like, you know, we need to be prepared See, for it. See, the other thing is that the parents pre-COVID never had an insight into the classroom. As a parent, hmm. you didn't know what the teacher That's is doing. True. And now, now the classroom, when the classroom came is into your, your home, you knew the, the teacher is good or home. not. That's right. And many school owners face this problem where their teachers were not good. So, you yeah. know, now here is a system that helps your teacher become far better. So the parental demand has changed. And hence, you know, we see that, you know, this, this is just the right time for a solution like ours to scale. And a couple of other questions. How old is... Lead now. Lead is now uh, 11 years old. We just celebrated our 10 years in. Uh, yeah, How many employees back. are there at Lead? We are around 1500 now. 1500 employees. How much venture capital have you raised today? We've raised uh, $170 million uh, since 2017. And what were you last valued at? Publicly. Our last uh, our last valuation was uh, $1.1 billion. Uh, this was our last round back in. Uh, a year back, early 2022. Do you talk about your revenue in public? Uh, yeah, I mean, normally we don't, but I mean, I can share here. See, we, we uh, the ARR equivalent mm -hmm. uh, is because we're not a monthly revenue business. Just we are the an annual, annual recurring revenue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for us, we call it annual contract value. Uh, we are around 450, 500 crores. This How year. old are you? How old am I? 45. You, you said you have two kids. I have two kids. What Fif are their names and how old are they? Uh, Zoya, she's 15 and uh, she's grade 10. And uh, Ane, he's 13. He's in grade 7. Uh, both go to this fantastic school that I have learned a lot from. And I have a lot of gratitude for because uh, in the early years, I befriended the principal and the educators there. And they uh, were kind enough to let me into their classrooms, their teacher meetings, and a lot of things, uh, uh, you know, at LEAD, I've learned from that school too. Uh, 
so I, I think I've, I've become a better parent also because of this work because I, I understand uh, or I read a lot about uh, there are uh, feedback loops running through our lives yes in yes more ways yes and one. in fact my daughter actually has uh, done a lot of uh, curriculum creation work uh, at Leeds she's interned uh, three years in the summers at a row uh, she writes so she's written uh, some beautiful poems and uh, texts for our kids uh, at our school so yeah let's switch gears here um beyond lead i think you've given us a great understanding of how lead works in the spaces that it works etc i want to talk about you as a person what makes you get up after taking a knock and i'm sure you've taken a lot of knocks considering the space that you're targeting and the ambitious visions that you're setting for yourself yeah. see for me i think the the one thing that got me into the space was uh, a combination of experience of pain and then the energy of seeing a possibility uh what i mean by that is uh, the fact that there is lack of equity in education is a pain that it's what drives there. you yeah and kids are just full of possibilities so when i look at that child and when i'm looking at those children i just feel like there is not a single moment i can give up because if i give up then we are giving up on our future generation so for me it's the kids it's the classrooms that's that is all that never allows me to give up uh and whatever challenges failures we come across ultimately everything that we are doing at lead and i am personally doing is in the service of those children so you know we are parents i am a parent you're a parent we never give up however sick however unwell we are we will do everything in our capacity to take care of our children i see all children as my children and to be honest i think that is what keeps me going i know this is an unfair question because i'm asking you to imagine something but do you think you and sumit would have ever started or you especially would have started lead if you were not a parent it's uh, it's a tough one for me to answer because i can't imagine what it would been like but it is very much true for me particularly i think sumit would i i i've known yeah, him now for so many years yes it looks like he, he would have, have anyways gone it. in that yeah. direction uh, for me uh, uh, zoya was the turning point my own child was the turning point because you said earlier i mean the way you look at other children changes Yeah. once you are a parent because then you don't just see a child you see a a set of possibilities and opportunities and Absolutely. you're wondering do they have Absolutely. the same ones i think that's why i love children i especially love working with very young children i love whenever i'm visiting a school my energy zone is the pre primary section they are just bright eyed they are always energetic there is hope and because sponges. they've not been they're just absorbing they're and they are just also givers of love and you know i keep telling my daughter actually that i do what i do today all because of you both because uh, you you coming in my life changed the way i started looking at the world uh, and secondly uh, a, a lot of work that i did with zoya and the way she responded to it gave me a lot of positive energy that hey kids are actually waiting for this and uh, this is possible you know as as i said when i saw how she was reading she she was an avid reader by the time she was older and my younger one actually uh, she did a lot of the uh, 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 teaching of reading in a lot of ways right through games and stuff uh, 
and when i saw that and i was like see i've empowered this child for the rest of her life because wherever she goes she's reading on her own she's curious and if that can be done for all children why not so i think for me that is the energy uh i'll, I'll give you an example of this uh, rohin when uh, covid was i mean covid had hit i i remember that uh, you know there was this morning when we got to know that bangalore schools had shut down it was 11th of march or something and you know sumit and me were driving to work and we were still trying to figure out what's happening and when the schools shut down in bangalore and our our business was largely in the south at that time we were partnering with some 700 schools at that point of time our first reaction was what happens to the kids because they are no longer in school their end of year assessments are there and they have to prep for the new academic year and schools won't know what to do so what can we do about it it was not business it was not anything else and in 5 days in 5 days literally we launched lead school at home which was an online class that our tutors were doing because our school teachers i mean we didn't have any time to communicate with our schools and we basically started that and in fact that of course over 2 years became a whole you know a whole online lead school platform till covid was there which we of course shut down because we don't need it but i think the the then you know, this example is just an anecdote to share all of the decisions that we make come from the place of what is in the best interest of the child how do we reach out to more children our sense of urgency to grow also comes from every year that we don't reach kids it's like a generation lost so how can we get there fast and that just gives me immense energy so um that's well, my driver when you talk about covid and the generation lost and there were all these reports that came out which which were fairly extensive that talked about almost like the lost decade that many yeah. countries yeah. like like india and like developing countries would see because of the two years where uh children did not get a quality education vis-a-vis their peers in the rest of the world and how it would set them back decades in terms of earnings etc and then Absolutely. post schools reopening there was talk of remedial action etc and all that do we have a sense of where we are today on that gap that opened up between kids in developing countries like india versus those either in the same countries but in better schools or in developed countries absolutely see india has suffered with learning gaps for a long while even pre covid and many reports were issued i mean is uh, uh, her being the most popular one which has been showing us pre covid also that we have at least a 2 to 3 year learning gap you know which essentially large. means that similar kids of similar ages are just yeah so like a grade 5 child where they should be in terms of their skill set they're actually 2 years behind they're at grade 3 level now our own data because we are working with so many schools and we basically we start with the beginning of your assessment for a child to know where the child is so that we can actually personalize the learning journey for them we have consistently ever since the inception of lead we have consistently seen that that gap is anything between one and a half to two years in the affordable private school segment so we were always designed to help the kids cover that gap i gave you the example of english uh how do you benchmark program, this since you're observing um or testing the kids who work who are in your schools how do you yeah. benchmark so this is basically whatever the national standard says ncert is setting the national standard that a child uh, at the you know at grade 2 level should be doing this right. we have so standardized assessments 
that we make and the school independently runs and that data comes to us and that data tells us where the learning gaps are and then of course we have we have remedial programs we have a bridge course all of those things and you know during covid we actually created a lot of these things uh, for uh, for our kids to do you know to to sort of uh, bridge those gaps but the point is that during covid of course this got worse and uh, this uh, you know this this basically there was another one 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 and a half years of gap that came in now I I don't think the problem in India is new. So COVID only made it a little worse. We are very very behind the world, and I think it's important that fundamentally the way we design solutions for schools and for childrens actually does factor in this this reality that kids are behind where they should be, behind where the Indian national standard tells them. The moment I raise that standard to PISA, then we're talking about completely different gaps, and I don't think anyone has even measured that. Even today, I don't have data to measure that. But versus the Indian national standard, kids are two two and a half years behind. Now, what at least we've been able to do at Lead is we during COVID created a bridge course. So in a ten day program, in a very targeted manner, we were able to, uh, you know, take kids who were let's say at that grade level only at forty percent mastery. we were able to take them to 60% mastery so that all the prerequisite skills are taken care of before they move on to the next grade and then in any case our programs are designed for kids who have these gaps to take them forward and you know it it worked well but those who are not going to a lead partner school this continues to be a challenge that is the reason why all incoming schools and students into the lead program pre covid or even now have a two year gap which we are dealing with constantly is there any kind of a national priority program i know we have a lot of priorities but this never seems to register it's see i think you know what's happened is that over the over the last 10 years it's, it's only when pratham started publishing the assar report there was more quantitative data that started at least killing the debate that there is genuinely a learning gap uh and so let's not debate about it let us at least start working to solving it it has taken the government a long time to move in that direction largely the indian government has been very input focused when i say input focused infrastructure schools should be there toilets should be there meals should be there these are important and these have taken the enrollment levels to around 95 96% but that's not enough uh, learning outcomes is the true is the true gift we have to give our kids we still have a lot of work to do now the government is making a shift with the national education policy in intent it wants to move in that direction but i have also seen very up close and personal that from the nep policy document to execution is a big big journey and a gap uh, and and hence i feel that players private players like us i hope there are many more but we all need to buckle up and uh, do this job uh because our ability to innovate our ability to bring solutions with good amount of research and using technology is far better than the governments because the government does not have that capability and it will be amazing if we find a path where the government partners with the if private sector mistaken, the for us to budget allocations for education have only come down over the you know last 10 yeah. years or so so it's not that the resources exist for even the government to be able to kind Actually, of the resources do exist you know because uh, this interesting fun fact is no i'm talking about budgeted budget, resources not budgeted budgeted resources hmm. also they exist and i'll tell you how 
so fun fact is we actually ran for government schools in our early days on a partnership model we were trying to show to the delhi government that it is possible even in your schools uh, for us to come up with a scalable model but uh, it, it didn't move uh, much after a couple of years because the is officer changed and you know the whole government bureaucracy sort of settled the amount of operational expenditure that the government incurs on education per child is 4x more of what private schools do 4x more I'm so assuming a significant part of that is wasted a significant it has part to of be. it is wasted so for example uh, you know the schools we still run our original schools uh, our school charges around 20000 fees per annum on an average and we deliver very high quality learning with you know with the lead solution uh, we make a little bit of profit on it so that we are able to invest in the school the government so our our expenditure let's say if you're taking 20000 from the parent our expenditure is maybe 18000 per student for that quality the government on an average spends anything and now there are official data and there is not so official data uh, the the range would be in 50000 to 90000 per student is the expenditure uh that goes from the government so there is a lot of money there there is a lot of money there uh, it goes in their infrastructure cost is significantly higher uh, they are building the same buildings uh at a much larger cost i can't say why i think of we course. all understand why yeah. their teachers are paid a lot more in the government school that we were running the government teachers were uh you know were uh, paid a salary of maybe 70000 per annum which is a good salary sorry 70000 per month which is a good salary but unfortunately many of the government teachers are not teaching so they were not at least in these four they were not coming and teaching in the school and so we placed our own private teachers who were coming at who were at a much lower salary this was in the heart of delhi city uh, at 20000 uh, salary and that teacher was teaching and i think that is a systemic issue the government really needs to solve because teachers are there is no teacher accountability so the government there is spending there is no outcome accountability no outcome accountability no action accountability right i mean yeah. at, at a very high of level course. if there is outcome accountability then it will continue to trickle down Absolutely. to teacher accountability even simple action accountability see as an organization when an employee shows up and does not do any work we don't even wait for the outcome we know that the employee is not working but unfortunately that part the government has not been able to solve and i i, I also i don't think there is lack of intent i think there is lack of i mean there is intent i've met so many is officers and government officials who are very keen to make changes to the system but it's just so deep inside And so what you said, there are roughly two times the number of government schools and private schools. Absolutely. In fact, one of the reasons why I was disillusioned in the first part of my journey, the first two years, when I was doing a non-profit and I actually moved away from non-profit to setting up Lead, was it was too slow, and it was so tough to change that system, and it was frustrating me. So I said, "Hey, let me try and do it in a way, in a place where, uh, you know." i have parents who are willing and outside of the government system and that that's when i realized see i didn't know all of this data right of number of schools and all of those things i just saw these private schools also who were struggling i said okay let's just go do that let me just set up a school and then when i 
when and when we did that journey we realized here is another large problem but i think if there's one thing i would be very happy to do and i hope i get the opportunity to is somehow work with the government to change make changes there i'm sure even within the government schools there exists a strata of these schools are like for example the kendra vidyalayas many of the schools in delhi etc right so well. what how would that if you were to look at the roughly 1 million government schools what would that pyramid look like within the government schools see i don't know exact numbers of kendra vidyalaya but only kendra vidyalaya army schools these some of these smaller segments will stand out i think the numbers are small the numbers are really small uh large scale there still needs to be a lot of work that needs to be done now some states are doing different things like for example delhi government is trying to do something different i've seen some action on ground and uh, it definitely seems to be tesco seem to have moved in delhi if i'm not mistaken yeah. post and, and, intervention yeah. and uh, you know especially the the new government uh, introduced some new systems uh, they are also trying to bring technology there are some other states which are trying a few experiments i know maharashtra is trying some experiment uh, now there is a stated intent to bring nep to life there is a stated intent from the central government to do what they call aspirational districts and they are partnering with some non profits uh, you know so i really hope that works but my, i i fundamentally believe that the answer maybe lies in the government not being the operator the government actually playing the being role the of a regulator and the, the funder. funder be the regulator hold the operators accountable for outcomes so operators like us can come in and say hey we'll run these schools for you uh you pay us when you see outcomes and i think those public private partnership models uh, i really hope at least start getting experimented uh, many of them get talked in many rooms but unfortunately not a lot of action has happened i mean we keep pitching to multiple governments multiple times uh, but yeah change in the government system has to go through multiple hoops uh, rohan unfortunately what's the split of responsibilities between you and sumit as co-founders so it's been very organic with time uh we've picked up things that uh needed to be picked up and you know uh, one of us just picked it up uh but at least now because we're a large organization and you know the way we've split it is uh, or rather at least the uh, th- there are some things we do in common so we are co-ceos now actually that is also not a very common construct in india is what i realized uh so what that means is that there are certain strategic things and dis- decisions we make together uh we both think very differently and hence we find it works better if we make these decisions together versus one person making it those are largely uh, in terms of long term strategy uh next year strategy goals and things like that uh i work a lot more with the product uh curriculum uh teams and uh also Uh, basically all the central functions like finance supply chain all of these enabling functions uh, sumit leads more of the uh, you know direct functions in terms of his business uh, team sales uh, you know field uh, sort of functions tend to report to him uh, but yeah but now we have a leadership team and many of them are independently handling their mandates so we're not what's your span of control 
how many people do you have who report I to you? I think out of 1500 from a structural reporting point of view, it would be half and half. No, I mean like how many people directly report uh, to you? How many people directly report to me? See, right now is not a great time to ask me that question <laughs> because I have a, uh, I have, yeah, I have one, one or two, I'm one or two uh, CXO short right now. So I'm pretty much playing those roles. But yeah, I think I have... Uh, 15, 16 people directly reporting to me and Sumit also would have that but in an ideal situation I would say uh, it should be 6, 7 7 people seven If I were to ask your direct reports to describe you using one adjective what would be what do you think might be the most common one that they'd use? Uh, very detail oriented I think that's what they'll say What is it that you feel you add most value to lead as a co-founder and co-CEO? I think I bring the... Uh, I would say two two things or three things. I think one, uh, I just live the mission all the time. So does Sumit, but I think I'm always the voice in the room uh, on, hey, how is this helping the child? Or this might be good business, but how is this helping the child? Uh, and I think that is the voice I always bring uh, in every conversation. So I think that is one. I've never let us deviate from there. Uh, I am a missionary. You know, what that means is I do fundamentally believe that only if we deliver outcomes will we make money. And I cannot imagine a single situation where I have to choose money over outcomes. That's a choice I won't make. Because whenever the, the team feels we need to make the choice... I always will say, oh, well, we have to think harder. We're missing something here because we've got to deliver both. Uh, so so I, I would say that is one. Second is I, um, I, I never give up. I just never give up. And hence, uh, through all the good times or bad times, uh, I'm the one uh, also who's saying, okay, so let's just work through it. And I will roll up my sleeves and get in. That is also why they call me detail-oriented because I have the capacity to go in very deep uh, in multiple things. Uh, so, of course, my my team does joke about the fact that you can't get past half-baked stuff with Smitha uh, because she won't let it go, you know. She will dig in and then she'll dig in. And, uh, so, I think that is the other thing. Uh, and, and that, uh, whether you call it diligence or whether you, you know, whether you call it uh, uh, deep thinking, I think that that does... Uh, that does uh, bring out good quality thinking. Uh, so we're a little more prepared as we as we move forward. Uh, and uh, yeah, third is, I mean, right now I'm the acting CFO, so I'm the money manager and I ensure the capital allocation happens well. So I also find ways for them to save money. So maybe that is the other third thing. What are your views about wealth? And how have they changed? I think uh, my okay my my own uh, needs are actually fairly limited. I think that's the one thing that uh, Sumit and me had a lot of resonance on, right? Uh, we had a number that we set out for ourselves 15 years back when we were young uh, people working at PNG uh, and said at this level there is financial freedom because we were very clear about what our own personal needs were. And we achieved that financial freedom before we started lead, uh, which was good because lead was, uh, we in a way signed a pact with each other that if lead never makes money, we're both happy. And we both signed that. 
and 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 that has i think has been the most powerful thing for us uh, because we've never deviated from our mission i think what wealth does is and what has changed over time uh, especially as lead grew because we never imagined it would grow like this it all just started happening and we then said hey it is our responsibility to make something good out of this especially as we started raising money we realized that actually this resonates with so many people and that wealth means so much more access for students so much more innovation that can come in uh, so the way i see that is basically wealth is uh, is an enabler to bring that equity and that's the role i see uh, myself playing at lead and one day whenever there is exit personally for me i think that's the role i see my personal wealth also playing i think wealth means opportunity for those who don't have it and that is how we must use it uh, you don't need much uh, you know to to live a good life uh, beyond a point honestly so what more can one do with it you said something very interesting you said both you and sumit had a pact that even if lead never makes money you were cool with it and that was okay for then but now yes. you've raised a significant amount of, course, of venture of capital yes and it is your responsibility now it's a fiduciary responsibility Absolutely. for you to provide returns and multiples Absolutely. how do you square the two now because now there is this see they you know, they, they were never in conflict so when we signed that pact it was uh, we will personally not make money out of lead but when we set up our school we always looked at a business model that would work for that school so it had to be self paying we set it up as a for profit company uh, knowing very well that this can scale and this can actually outlive us only if it makes money for all the stakeholders this is for the employees it is for the investors for the shareholders so this pact was more for us that if we don't make personally money out of this we fine i appreciate that yeah now uh, you know making money for our shareholders is absolutely our fiduciary responsibility right we've raised so much of money on this again i uh, you know if i connected back to something else i was saying earlier that i fundamentally do believe that if we deliver student outcomes we will make money now it is in the decisions of the business model right i mean when we uh you know as we launched products and when i say products what i meant was when we started we only were doing pre primary to certain grades now we do all the way up to grade 10 we have multiple types of boards and curriculums that we offer to schools uh so and now we are actually this year we are launching uh, beyond lead we're launching two more brands uh with very differentiated offerings because we've realized that schools in the same vicinity don't two schools start competing with each other if both have lead because they their brand equity rides on lead now i of course don't want to stop good education going from everyone so differentiated uh, solutions and stuff so i think uh, you know as we've done that it's 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 very first principles thinking that you can't scale something that is loss making you just can't i never understood that when i saw that in a lot of companies i so, i i that's actually yeah. very important in the education space because for the scale of the problem that this is in india we still have this thinking that schools are not supposed to on paper schools are not supposed to make a profit unfortunately right? we have that belief in hospitals like in another area where like you know there are these and and this flows into regulation yes. it leads into a lot of structures which are designed to kind of like you know get around it yes 
but this permeates even with a lot of parents i i mean, i want to ask you if yeah. it's changed or not because there is this thinking that schools are not meant they're not businesses they shouldn't be making profits their objective is to educate children in the best but like i i don't know how this squares because at the end of the day if a school is not sustainable as a business it cannot afford to pay its teachers those teachers are living in the real world they have the opportunity to go to a different career where they'll get paid more and they have their families to take care this is a chain yeah. that runs all the way and this is this is in fact one of the most unfortunate things because it has uh, you know the the collateral damage to this belief are the children because uh, then there is no room for innovation there is no room for good teachers why why are our teachers so poorly skilled they are poorly skilled because of the fact that neither do they see value in investing there are in no themselves incentives. and uh, there are no incentives to learn and grow and there is no money to learn and grow if you actually see schools and again i'm always you know when i'm sharing this i'm always leaving out the top creamy layer of schools right those are exceptions largely in india you don't see schools invest in teachers learning they don't directly invest in teachers learning now imagine you're running an organization and you Which don't invest in the into, trainer program right? so and yeah. if you're not investing in your people's growth how do you expect them to deliver outcomes now they are not investing in their teachers learning because they are constrained for resources you know recently there was one one of our partner schools where uh, parents basically you know uh, started uh, sort of sitting outside saying why are you taking a private publication we want you to use the state board textbook now here is actually a very unaware parent it's really sad that the parent thinks like this and unfortunately the one to suffer will be the child this is a problem in india uh, how do you solve it it's a very deep problem and i think the only way to solve it is more parental education and awareness educated parents will not think like that those who are not educated will think like that and this is a tough one to solve see even at lead uh, we have we have found it difficult in fact recently sumit has started this uh, youtube channel called parenting aajkal it was basically to start driving a little more awareness it has nothing to do with lead mm. he just runs this uh, essentially for parents to understand that if you want the best for your child uh, your school has to innovate your school has to hire a good teacher uh, if the teacher is not paid the salary then how is she going to be able to sustain and why will good educated people come and become teachers they won't become teachers if you don't pay them salaries i i want to ask you a question and contrast this with what's happened with teachers in the test prep um ias iit j where something at the other spectrum has happened that each of them have started becoming brands in themselves gone to attacks youtube channels and have quote unquote become sometimes celebrities or mercenaries in many ways what we are seeing the correction there is a true recognition of what a good teacher brings to a large set of students I'm not saying something like that will happen within schools because we are talking about teachers in the environment of their own schools but that gap still exists no incentives yeah. no recognition of what a good teacher can do within a school I think the biggest gap really exists in um the parental awareness of when to invest in your child's life uh unfortunately parents are investing when 
there is when four it's more. time to when crack an exam. When it is time to crack an exam. I've had so many conversations with friends and parents like us who are very educated who actually will say why do i spend so much money on an international school they afford it right why do i spend so much money on an international school when my child is in pre primary if my I child think goes to college 9th and 10th like, but actually the main development happens in these early formative years so it is contrary to you know it's like you're investing after you have already uh, sort like of lost preparing hope. for an exam the night before the exam exactly if you really have to invest as a parent my advice to every single parent is invest early in your child great preschool great primary school your child is going to be sorted most likely by the time they hit uh, you know high school and entrance they're not going to need you to spend so much money so i think what's what's happening in the test prep segment is also highly inflated because of this fear of missing out and it is sad to see because again see most parents are not able to afford it or parents and students land up borrowing so much money to pay for all this that i mean i i don't think we're creating access with it what is happening unfortunately is happening there i think if i if i bring it back to schools that you were talking about right in schools uh, as long as the parent pays fees in the schools even within the 20000 very good education is possible that is what we are trying to do what the parent needs to do really and my hope with parents is give the school the autonomy don't start mandating and saying oh use x textbook or y textbook it's the educator in the school who knows this let the school principal decide let the teachers decide let them actually compare multiple players and pick the one that is really good and that actually will uh, bring more innovation in the ecosystem so the capitalistic structure actually brings more innovation how does that you competition know? work i mean today between schools let's say in a in town or in a city uh, in a particular area let's say there are 10 or 20 schools what is the current setup where there is competition like you mentioned capitalism what is a capitalistic competition setup between schools to do better or to attract more parents and children see for schools the big differences are schools can the, the biggest differentiator they have to provide is quality of learning now they can do how, it in two ways yeah? yeah three ways actually one is the infrastructure that they providing so a school which has multimodal and when i say multimodal it's it's three modes it is visual that means audio visual is there it is kinesthetic that means there are teaching resources in the school there are manipulatives learning math with manipulatives and with kinesthetic uh, uh stuff is very different from just doing abstract math right so they have that and they have the uh, auditory which is the books right so that school versus a school which only does auditory is one big differentiation that they'll bring second is the choice of curriculum that they'll make uh, make you can choose a state board uh, or a you know uh ncert level of curriculum but that is far behind where the rest of the world is so that's where there are multiple players now traditionally there are more pub there were more publishers uh, you know in the last few years there were a lot of publishers who did a good job of bringing this now there is lead there are a few other players but largely working through publications who bring that so school would choose that that would be a big differentiation so uh, a school with lead will be very different from a school that uses a publisher and they will actually showcase it to the parent and the third layer really is the quality of teachers which is what the school brings where they hire and they train teachers now if they are partnering with lead lead will 
train the teachers if they're partnering with someone else you know someone else will train the teachers so this is how they compete with each other uh, and a parent will typically visit a school and speak to a few other parents and this is how we will make that choice i mean this is how i made the choice for my own children and now if we just uh, click one level deeper schools then look at a menu of uh, service providers or product providers to decide what's right for them and you know lead is one of the solutions now it's just that we ourselves have been school owners and hence we take a very consultative approach to the school where we actually first understand what their problems are and then offer them the right solutions uh, so that they are able to further uh you know showcase it to their parents so on an average actually we've seen over a period of time schools that partner with lead average admission growth is 10 to 15% and some of them double their admission in a matter of a year uh because now with lead if that if they're getting the teachers to implement it well the parent will see the difference but which is the limit that you said you'll hit earlier because now if you have two lead schools in so the same area so now we're saying that yeah so now we're saying that ultimately the essence of all of this is very good pedagogy and uh, you know high learning outcomes so we're now creating uh, multiple product lines so that the schools can differentiate so they'll they'll be basically uh, working with different brands that's that's the strategy we've taken towards growth tell us about your kids and their view of the world so you know as teenagers of course their view of the world evolves uh, both of them uh, I feel proud of the fact that like Sumit and me and uh, you know both of them uh take joy or see uh see success in doing something that is meaningful for the world. Uh so both of them that way are aware. Of course they go through their uh, anger and phases of frustration with what we adults seem to be doing with the world. uh they 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 feel we're ruining it for them especially as far as climate is concerned and things like that so they are aware kids but then now i think especially my older one as she's growing up uh we have been able to get her to see that uh there are problems uh, so how are you going to be part of the solution i think she's she started to think about how she's going to be part of the solution and uh, our younger one will get there uh but i i really hope i hope for them that uh they won seek happiness from simple things and from their uh, from their own learning right happiness never comes from achieved outcomes happiness comes from the journey you know if you're learning and you feel joyful about it you're happy you may get there you may not get there and that's okay <laughs> so i really hope that happens for them and uh, i also do hope that they as individuals do make an impact in the world where they they they, they land up doing something that improves lives of some people and i think that's really needed uh there's there's no yeah there's no meaning in just earning you've raised a lot of money uh for lead i'm sure that came on the back of a lot of conversations with investors that ended up with them saying not getting back to you or saying no we will not invest absolutely when lot you look more back, rejections yes when you look back at those rejections What are some of the learnings that you'd like to give away to other entrepreneurs? I I think every rejection is a very important learning moment. Uh I think my my in fact uh, advice to entrepreneurs is that uh, often I see entrepreneurs look at that rejection as uh, sort of you know externalizing the issue that they don't get it. 
uh they oh, do you don't understand specific with i mean without going into uh, details of any particular investor i mean no, something like for like example that. i've heard entrepreneurs say that oh that investor doesn't get it uh no, oh no, there no. is I meant this thing with yeah. your own experiences mm. with lead some of the investors who chose not to invest in you when you reflect back on those is there something that you could have done differently I mean see, I are think, there any reflections from there Yeah so see it it was a learning journey right now in that learning journey uh, you know one part of that learning journey was it is very important to understand their world view and your world view and if they do not match then you you anyways don't belong together Now when you're listening to their world view uh think about whether there are bits for you to take away because it's expanding your world view there have been some interesting thoughts that have come up in those conversations which are now part of the lead journey you know every every bit of those conversations have made us richer i would say uh sometimes the world views are very different you know the example i take is, is, is you know some investor actually he was very kind enough to write to us and say that you should change your business model from b to b to b to c because no one has ever made a big business with schools uh and we very politely you know shared that we appreciate your care that you've written to us we our world view is different our world view is that schools is where transformation is needed and just because others have not succeeded does not mean no one can succeed because we're not willing to give up on this and we continue and that I think gave us energy that there are non-believers, and I don't wrong them, but they're non-believers, and we move on. Uh, you know, so I think there are multiple, multiple things that we've learned. There are lots of questions that they ask you sometimes on your business model. Uh, there are people who've looked at our business model and at different phases have told us, "You guys are not ready uh, for us because this needs to be improved." That was very valuable input. Um, the global benchmarks actually you know that we started learning from came through investor conversations it was uh, a good investor friend who first heard our model and then said oh this sounds like x company in brazil and we were like oh we've never heard about it and you know when we eventually connected with uh, the you know this was uh, it is this company called arco in brazil and when we connected with the arco founder uh, ari like our stories were as if like wo you know we say kumke mele mein but you know siblings are right. we like my god identical stories just over two generations there uh, you know the, his parents used to run a school and then he created a system out of it and we just did it in a shorter lifespan uh, and you know there was just so much to learn now that investor never eventually invested in us but i think opened a world of things for us to learn so there are a lot of things on unit economics on the model on scaling that we've learned through these investor conversations and these rejections so yeah so i think i was just making the point that you know sometimes and i get asked this question sometimes that oh do you it's a very cliched question but asked often uh, did you feel that uh, you were rejected because of your gender i was like actually i didn't feel it because i never looked at it through that lens so even if someone rejected me because i was a female entrepreneur i would never know and i don't care for it because i don't think there's any learning for me there i am not changing my gender i'm the same person so if someone has rejected me for that it's their problem but there is no point of trying to look at it through that lens so i've never looked at it through the lens of oh they don't get it or is it because of gender or is it because of bias no it is not someone is not resonating with you L- try and understand why take out what is there for you to learn and move on 
I'm going to ask you to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 as a CEO and as a parent. CEO and as a parent. Okay. <laughs> I will ensure that my children don't listen to this because I'm sure they will massacre uh, the ratings. Uh, I would rate myself as uh, an 8 as a CEO uh, and uh, 9. 9 as a parent. I would rate Sumit maybe better as both a CEO and a parent, if I'm being very honest. What does personal time look like for you? Personal time? Uh, actually, I don't do... Uh, I, does it exist, personal time? I love what I do. This is my life. This truly is my life, Rohan. So, for me, personal time is also about... Uh, lead about what more can we do for our kids are there programs uh, what is happening in the world can I visit some schools what more is happening can I read so that is what personal time is of course personal time is apart from lead and really or other education and what can be done and reading about it and things like that uh, kids my two children are the only other part of my life uh, between these Three children. I'm very happy, and I and, I, and I love doing that. Fourth founder I've spoken to on first principles, who's called, who's used the exact same phrasing of between these children, yeah. between my real it children is, and yeah, my company. Yeah, it is company, like you know, uh, as an entrepreneur, it is very much like that, right? And that's why even when you asked me on days of uh, failure or tough days, you never give up. You just don't. It doesn't even occur to you as an option. It's not an option on the table. Doing what makes you lose sense of all time? Creating curriculum, by far. I just love it. Uh, and I was recently talking to my curriculum team and I told them, I said, you know, I'm saying this in private, but yours is the job I love the most. Uh, and uh, Sumit and me fought very hard for this one, but it logically made sense for the curriculum team to work with me. But yeah, that's the part I love most. So I still review our books when I'm reading them, there is a loss of, uh, you know, loss of sense of time. And, you know, you, you say flow, right? Like, that yeah. is real flow. On a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you with your life? Well, 9, 9 and a half. I love, I love my life. I don't think. I think I'm very, I'm very fortunate that I get to do what I really love doing. Uh, and I get to make an impact. I get to see these kids. It's just joy to be in school with these children. And uh, I, you know, in the process, I am building an institution. I think I'm just very, very fortunate. It's a privilege, which I don't take lightly at all. Uh, I think I, there is a responsibility to be held here. So I couldn't have asked for anything better. Thank you so much for your time, Smitha. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Rohan. Thank you. 